Praise God. Good to see everybody in the house of the Lord tonight. And uh, how many are thankful for the word of God? Amen. I am thankful for God's word because I realize one thing, and uh, hopefully through this G52, um, this has uh, kind of been impressed upon your heart um, as the, the word of God shows us over and over again that you can't really grow spiritually uh, without the word of God. You can't be perfected. God can't transform you without the word of the Lord. And so as we study the Bible, as we look into the scriptures, there is a change and a transformation that happens as the word of God works together with uh, the spirit of the Lord. And tonight our focus is on our G52 reading for this week, which is Colossians chapter number three. And uh, we're going to go through this portion, this reading, and um, uh give you a little background on this passage of scripture and also help you understand uh, some of the, the powerful principles that are being communicated in the word of God here. So uh, we'll just say a quick word of prayer and then we'll get into our study tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, for the promises that are in, for the powerful truth that uh, it declares to us in our prayer tonight, Lord God, is that we would grow, uh, we would become wiser stronger, more like you as a result of spending time in your word tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Now, this is a very rich passage of scripture, all of Colossians, some of the most profound writings of the Apostle Paul. There is a chance we won't get all the way through this chapter tonight, but we're going to go as far as we can. Is that okay? And uh, we'll finish up before 8.15. And uh, so however far we get is how far we get. Praise the Lord. Now, I want to share with you, first of all, our theme is uh, these clothes don't fit. And uh, as you read through Colossians chapter 3, you'll notice that the apostle is telling the people that they have to take off something and put something else on. They have to take off an old outfit and put on a new outfit. Now, this is not talking about changing clothes, but it's talking about the old nature and the old person that we were and the acts and the sins that were part of the old life and how that we put on uh, uh, a whole new set of attitudes, actions, and conduct. So let me just uh, set a little stage. Obviously, most of you realize that the book of Colossians is an epistle of Paul. That means a letter that Paul wrote to a church. The church was located, guess where? Can anybody guess where this church was located? Colossae, yeah, right, Colossae which was a, uh, a community, one of three major communities that were inland from, uh, from Ephesus. Ephesus was closer. We talked about Ephesus last week in uh, Acts uh, chapter 19. Um, Ephesus was right on the coast, um, whereas uh, the, the, the city or the community of Colossae was 100 miles inland. So it was kind of a crossroads, if you would, between the Western civilized world and the Eastern civilized world in this area called Asia Minor. And uh, so this is the uh, church in Colossae was who the Apostle Paul wrote this to. He wrote this while he was in prison. And he, at the same time that he was writing the letter to the church in Colossae, he was also writing and also delivered a letter to the church in Ephesus. So if you study both Colossians and Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, you will see that there are many parallels in these writings. Although there are some differences, there are some strong parallels. Now, the thing about the church in Colossae, this is a church that Paul did not directly start. 
As we said last week, the church in Ephesus was started by the Apostle Paul himself as he spent three years there uh, uh, converting, teaching, discipling, establishing new believers. But Colossae was indirectly started by Paul because during his time in Ephesus, you remember last week in Acts 19, the Bible said that all of Asia heard the message because of what was happening in Ephesus. So there was some converts from the church in Ephesus that took the message to Colossae and established the church. So I think it's really neat that this important and significant church didn't even have a visit ever by the Apostle Paul. So he was writing to a church, people who he had never met before in a city that as far as we can tell, he never went to. So he didn't pastor these people. They weren't his direct converts, but all of Asia was impacted. Now, the deal is with, uh, as you look into the book of Colossians, you'll see that Paul is very directly addressing some things. And in order to understand why he was addressing these things, I think it's important to find out what the issues were in the church in Colossae. It starts by understanding where it's located. I said it was at the crossroads between Western civilization and Eastern civilization, not just logistically, but philosophically as well, right? Okay, so what's, what does that mean? That means that there was a lot of Western thought and Eastern thought and Jewish thought that were all coming together. So you had uh, pagans, you had Jewish believers, and you had Eastern mysticism. All uh, Eastern Asian mysticism, all that was coming together philosoph- philosophically and thought-wise in this area. So as a result, there were a lot of religious hucksters that would create an amalgam of these religions to build a following. They would come up with a new idea or a new knowledge. So there was many uh, examples in this region of religious speculation and uh, religious heresies. It was a breeding ground for new ideas that people would come up with and try to secure a following. And of course, with the expansion expansion of Christianity and the message of Jesus Christ and many followers then of Jesus Christ, these um, uh, religious um, hucksters is the, the best way I can describe it. Um, they were trying to get, gain a following for themselves. They also amalgamated the principles of Jesus Christ into a new philosophy. So why did Paul write this letter? He wasn't their apostle, uh, but some people came to him and said, hey, this is an issue that we need you to help us to deal with. So it's pretty significant that the great apostle Paul gave a letter to this young five-year-old church, sent a letter from from himself um, to address this issue. The crisis at hand in the church in Colossae was threatening to destroy the ministry of the church. And we can kind of figure out what was happening and, and, and connect the dots and what was taking place as we read the other epistles that Paul wrote in prison. We kind of pulled together what was happening in, uh, in this area and particularly in Colossae at this time. The heresy that was threatening the church was a combination of Eastern philosophy, Jewish legalism, and elements of something called Gnosticism. Anybody heard of Gnosticism before? It starts with a G, uh, G-N-O-S-T, Gnosticism. And it comes from uh, the word Gnosis, which means to know. That's why somebody who is an agnostic 
It means they don't know. Gnostic means knowledge. And so Gnostics were people who wanted to present the idea that they were in the know, that they had insight into the deep things of God. And so this heresy that was kind of an amalgam of Gnosticism, Jewish legalism, and uh, Eastern uh, uh, mysticism, this heresy that was threatening the church promised to the believers a closer union with God that could bring them to spiritual perfection But this fullness that they promised could only be reached if they entered into this special teaching and these special ceremonies that would bring them to this arena of enlightenment, to this full knowledge and spiritual depth that only the initiated to their belief and insight and wisdom could experience. And uh, we've seen this in in modern day. And uh, one of the things that... uh, uh, where we see that some of these abuses have happened in recent times. There's one that I can think of in particular out of many uh, is that there were specific men that had prophetic ministries and uh, because of their spiritual insight, they begin to dabble in doctrine and then uh, because they had miracles and supernatural signs and then they said, we, I, God's given me special insight into certain things that aren't clearly described in scripture, and, uh, and they gathered together a following that will come after them that has Jesus Christ still in his position, but it adds all of this other philosophy and ideas together with it. And uh, so what was happening is, in this heresy, is these people were using their prophetic wisdom and amalgamating them together with their unique practices to divide the church and pull away followers after them, uh, gullible people that were manipulated by spiritual gifts that would follow them. And so within this uh, uh, heresy that we see, there were elements of Eastern mysticism. I'm not going to go super deep into it just to give you a picture of what Gnostics believed in this Eastern mysticism mix was that all matter was evil. So since all matter is evil from their perspective, then God, who is pure and holy, could not have come in the flesh because flesh is matter and matter is evil. And then they had other beliefs that, uh, that there were angels that were heavily involved that they needed to make sure they took care of because these angels were controlling heavenly bodies. So that's just a little quick picture. And so what they did is they took this, these beliefs and they mixed it together with Jewish legalism and taught people that with this special insight that they have and paying attention to, uh, to these angels and this new understanding of Jesus that, uh, um, that if they also would make sure that they were all circumcised, because remember, this is a Gentile church, that if they practice circumcision and they observe the dietary laws of Judaism, then uh, as all of this would be part of the experience of bringing this higher enlightenment and greater purity. So these heresies, what was the problem with them? Well, number one, they weren't scriptural. Number two, they were attacking the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. The preeminence of Jesus Christ. Now, they weren't attempting to deny 
Jesus, his power, his message, and the people's belief in Jesus Christ. But they were taking him off the throne, in essence. And Paul addresses the heresy in Colossians chapters 1 and 2 by clearly enunciating the preeminence of Jesus Christ. First of all, to make it very clear that Jesus Christ, who they knew was a man that came in the flesh, was in fact divine. That he was God, which was a contradiction to the Gnostic beliefs. So he emphasizes and hammers home the point that Jesus was God in the flesh. And you can read that in Colossians chapter 1. And also, he makes sure to emphasize that Jesus' death on the cross dealt with the sin question and that Jesus Christ himself defeated satanic forces. So let me just put this all into one simple phrase here. Paul was saying, in essence, this, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. The heresy sought to put something together with Jesus to accomplish the work that needed to happen in our lives. And the apostle Paul said, uh, forget about the angels controlling uh, the stars. Forget about all of these supposed practices and dietary concerns that are going to bring you to perfection. Jesus is enough. And Jesus doesn't mix with other stuff because he's all in all. Jesus is on the throne. Amen. And as I mentioned that the letter to the church in Ephesus was written at the same time. While there are many parallels, what we see is that Ephesians in its focus, the whole book focuses on the church or the body of Christ. Whereas Colossians focuses not on the body, but on the head, which is Jesus Christ. So there's tremendous amount of teaching on who Jesus was and his preeminent position, which the study of who Jesus was is called Christology. Are you guys still with me? Is this too deep? Are you still, still following, tracking with me? All right. And so oftentimes in the book of Colossians, as he is explaining the preeminence of Jesus Christ, you see frequently words like the fullness perfect, complete. You are complete in him. And so you don't need anything else because it's all in Jesus Christ, uh, who he is and what he did. So Paul is saying, in essence, forget about the idea of other heavenly emanations or angelic interventions in the stars. Jesus is enough. He's all in all. So in chapters one and two, the Apostle Paul establishes the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, he actually really goes in and focuses on where this heresy got its origins. When you study chapter 2, he says, Be careful, beware, lest men spoil you through philosophies and vain deceit after the rudiments of this world and not after Christ. So he showed the origins of this false heresy and how it in, a, in essence had contradicted everything that Paul taught. He said, you guys are here as believers in Jesus Christ because the message I declared in Ephesus and the church that was established in Ephesus and all of this stuff that they're bringing into the mix contradicts everything that I said. So if what I said didn't save you, then you're not saved. And so the apostle Paul in this chapter makes it very clear. And I think this is important. Because there is so much 
wishy-washiness, if that's a word, in the world today, and there's very little tolerance for solid, sound doctrine. The Bible says that there's a warning that the time would come when people would not endure sound doctrine, but would, would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They like to eat, hear things that are either pleasing to their flesh. Uh, we, we see a lot of that, a lot of teaching and preaching that does not focus on truth, but rather it focuses on what people want to hear. And also there is preaching and teaching that does not stay rooted to scripture, but it focuses on sensationalism. And there are a lot of people that have itching ears about sensationalism. The apostle Paul said, you got to be careful. You got to beware lest you're spoiled or ruined or destroyed through these hucksters. That's a word you guys are going to have to look up that come along and try to pull your attention and distract you away from the body of Christ with all of these insights, extra biblical insights and understanding rather than after Jesus Christ. He said, let me make sure that you are established. And I thank God for the book of Colossians. I thank God for this because in 2016, if there's any letter that Paul needs to write back to the church today, it's the, it's the book of Colossians to our church. Amen? Amen. And so in our focus tonight, the apostle Paul showed that the greatest anecdote to false teaching is a godly life, a godly life, because he espoused the belief that what you and I believe affects how we behave. There is no greater demonstration of solid theology than a biblical lifestyle. Amen. And so if we believe, for instance, in this case, in this particular heresy, if you believe that all matter is evil and your flesh is matter, then you're going to conduct your life one way. Many of the Gnostics believed that um, they could sin with their flesh because flesh is evil. It's going to do its thing, right? And uh, so this was their philosophy. But if you believe that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to conduct your life in a completely different way. So your lifestyle is going to be a reflection of your beliefs. And as I said, we need this letter today because we live in an era of what's, what's called religious tolerance. But it's not just tolerance. Tolerance is, um, is uh, allowing and giving space for people to believe what they want to believe, which we believe in tolerance. But the new idea of tolerance is not only do we allow people to believe what, we be, what they want to believe, but we have to also endorse what they believe as being right for them. This is the new spirit of religious tolerance. This is similar to uh, uh, what was happening during their day. And, uh, and the idea of, uh, that, that I'm talking about is the idea that one religion is just as right as another. And uh, there are some people... I don't know if you've met these people before, but I've met them. I got one in my family, not my immediate family, but a family member uh, that, uh, you know, I stayed with recently. We had a conversation and it was very clear. This was this person's philosophy to take the best from all the different beliefs and create this amalgam, create a religion of their own. This is my religion. So they'll take meditation, meditation, and then they'll take 
Hindu beliefs, and then they'll take, take different Eastern practices. And then, hey, we'll bring Jesus to the table as well because he had some good things to say. And they create this amalgam of beliefs. This, the word for this is, uh, is syncretism. Syncretism. That's trying to harmonize and unite various schools of thought to come up with one superior religion. And uh, uh, so Jesus, they say, was one of several great teachers. He didn't have more authority than any of the others. So we'll bring together these different belief systems, all of the wisdom writings, and create this syncretic belief system. I believe this is the spirit of the day, and this is the one world religion that's coming. The one world religion that's coming is a religion of tolerance. It's a religion of, well, you believe this, you believe that. My family member that I was telling me about, she said, the worst thing I like to hear is when people think that they got it right. People say that they got it right, that's going to turn me off right away. I'm like, well, there's got to be a, a way that's right, right? There can't be, everybody can't be right. I can't believe that two plus two equals four, you believe it equals three, and somebody else believes it equals five, and all of them are true. Only one of them's true. Right? Only one of them is going to be right. But the philosophy of, of the day, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist is a spirit that says, tolerate, amalgamate, let's all get along. And this is, if I were to take one religion and say this is the best example of, uh, of what we're talking about here, it would be uh, Hinduism. And Hinduism is a belief of pathways, when I say pathways, it means that there are various ways to get to the universal power, which you can call it God or whatever you want to. You can go through meditation. You can go through love. You can go through a placeholder. That means pouring your love on an individual. They say Jesus Christ is a placeholder that takes them to connection with God. Some people get there through, as I mentioned, meditation, various pathways. And they say, well, since God represents the top of the mountain. The pathway that you take is probably going to be different than the pathway that somebody who's on the other side of the mountain would take. It makes a lot of sense when you're looking at it philosophically. The problem is Jesus doesn't share the throne with anybody. He doesn't mix, amen? And the apostle Paul was saying that in essence and, and the... Uh, syncretism religion will not deny Jesus. They just will dethrone him. And the thing that true Christian believers can never get involved in this syncretism, here's the problem. We don't believe Jesus was a prophet. We believe that he was God manifest in the flesh. And if he's God manifest in the flesh, that's like trump card, right? Sorry to use that word. That's like... <laughs> That's like, you ain't got nothing else to deal. Because he is God. That's why the apostle Paul said on Mars Hill, he said, up to this time, until God revealed himself, he winked at all these crazy philosophies about who he was. But since Jesus rose from the dead, now he commands every man everywhere to repent. Because he showed up. God showed up and manifest himself. And so now there's no place for an amalgamation or various beliefs being legitimized, Jesus said, I am the way. The way, the truth, and the life. Amen. So Paul's warning in Colossians is, be careful lest any man beguile you or 
spoil you. So as I mentioned, chapters 1 and 2 define the doctrine of Jesus' preeminence. It's a good, uh, solid Christology, the deity of Jesus Christ. I wish I could teach on that tonight, but we, we can't. We're going to move on to chapter 3, which is the practical applications of the doctrines that Paul had been teaching. He said, this is how we put the doctrine of who Jesus is into practice in our life. Because let me tell you, it is a waste to declare and defend truth if you won't demonstrate it in your life. Come on, somebody. Can I say that again? I don't think you heard me right there. It is a waste of time. It is a waste of time for you to try to declare and defend Jesus Christ if you don't demonstrate him in your life. Titus said it this, uh, Paul said it this way in Titus 1.16, people that profess Christ, but in their works, they deny him. With your mouth, you talk, Jesus. I'm all in. Me and Jesus are homies. But then look at your life. You deny him with your actions. The apostle Paul said, this is truth. This is doctrine. But it's not enough for you to get it into your head. You need to get it into your life. And Colossians 3 is about how to take the preeminence of Jesus, the preeminence of what Jesus did on the cross, and put it on display in your life. So in chapter 3, he focuses on morality, on living a godly life. And it was teaching that was absolutely different from the pagan belief system of the day because the pagans believed that they could bring a sacrifice to their stone god, lay the sacrifice on the altar, and that takes care of things, right? And then they go live their lives however they want to until it's time to come offer another sacrifice. And then walk away. So the idea of the pagan belief was, and, and this is the idea of religion, okay? The idea behind religion is my beliefs don't necessarily affect how I behave. My beliefs are taken care of through some uh, acts or some rituals that take care of it. But then I go live my life however it is that I want to live. That's, see, that's the problem with the world today. That's the problem with Christianity today. No different than the pagans. Come to church. Show up at church, then go live however you want to. That's the, that's the problem with the twisting of theology, of easy believism, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you're saved. But guess what James said? If you say you have faith and then your life is in shambles, I don't believe you. Show me your faith by how your life is demonstrated, by what's happening through you and in you. And the apostle Paul is driving this point home. He said, it's not enough for you to believe something. It's got to show up in your life. So the Christian faith was bringing a brand new concept here to the pagan pagans that were outsiders and that is what we believe has a definite connection with how we live our lives so we start with verse one chapter three verse one if ye then be risen with christ seek those things which are above where christ sitteth on the right hand of god set your affection on things above 
not in things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So he talks here about us being dead and then risen with Christ. So this is the new birth experience, that we die, we're buried, and we are risen with Jesus Christ. We understand the good news is Jesus saved us because he died on a cross for our sins. He was buried, but our hope is in the fact that he rose from the grave. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. This is our hope. But the apostle Paul says, since you have been born again, since you died with Christ, you died to sin. And you are going are, are resurrected with Jesus Christ. And also, he says that you are hidden with Christ, which means you no longer belong to the world, but unto him. That means your source of life is no longer this world, but now your source of life is Jesus Christ, and you are hidden in him. And so he is teaching here that our, that our motivation and our strength is to come from heaven, and not from the earth. Since you died with Jesus, since you are risen with him, since you are identified with Jesus Christ, your responsibility now, how many have been born again? Your responsibility is to do something now. What does he say to do? He says, because of this, your responsibility is to seek those things which are above. We are to be seeking things that are above. And how do we do that? Verse 2 tells us, by setting your affections on things above, setting your thoughts, your desires on things above and not on the things of this world. So we, 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 get, we, we seek those things from above by setting our mind and our affection and our attention on things that are above, all right? So how do you do that? How do you get your mind to think on heavenly things? Is it like, like you get up in the morning and you'd like try to get in a trance and say, today I'm only going to think God things or I'm only going to think about heaven all day long today. Amen. There are practices in your life that will set your affections on things above. The first one is you can't set your affections on things above unless you take time to pray that day right? It's what he's telling us to do in essence. First of all, is take time to pray. Because when you don't pray, your mind is not going to be on heavenly things. Do I have anybody that'll be honest with me here for a minute? Because here, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you all four of them here and then we'll talk here. Okay, we'll talk for a minute. First is prayer. Second is reading and studying the Bible. When you read the Bible, it puts your mind on heavenly things instead of earthly things. So it's prayer, reading the Bible. What do you think the third one is? The third one is worship. Coming together with brothers and sisters to worship and being part of a worship service or even worshiping on your own, but particularly being a part together with other believers, committing your life to worship, all right? And then the fourth one is serving the purpose and mission of Jesus Christ, all right? So all of these things are actions that get your mind off the world and on heavenly things. 
got to get this now. The Bible says you've already been born again. Now you got a responsibility. You guys that are born again, it's not enough that you spoke in tongues and got the Holy Ghost goosebumps. And uh, it, it, it's not enough that you went down in the waters and were baptized in Jesus' name. That was your salvation. Now here's your responsibility. You have to consciously set your mind on things that are above. Get your mind off of the earth. And you can't do it through some kind of a um, transcendental meditation. There's only these specific ways. So think about it with me. If you've ever been there before, as I was going to say, where maybe you stopped praying. You were praying and then you stopped praying. Not because you woke up one day and said, I'm tired of praying, but because life got in the way, right? Anybody with me on that? And then you had a week where you missed church. And then guess what? Next week, it's a lot easier to miss church than it was the last time. It's real natural, right? And uh, we'll, throw, we'll, we'll throw all these things in the, midst, in the mix. So if you're not coming to church, you're not reading your G52, uh, you don't, you're not reading through your Bible if you're doing the yearly Bible. And then on top of that, if you're not coming to church, it's hard to be part of a service team here at church. And so guess what? This is the crazy part. Oh man, I wish I could just get what's in my heart and put it out here. I'm having trouble tonight. When you work for God, it does something to your thoughts. It does something to your affections. It does something to your heart. And there's some people that say, if I get a desire to, then I'm going to serve. I'm going to work for God. And God's saying, no, serve and work, and that'll set your affection in the right place. Amen? Getting the word of God, that'll put your affection. See, we got it backwards. We're like, if, if, if I really start feeling spiritual, then I'm going to read the Bible. Well, guess what? That ain't going to happen. Because you're not setting your affections. When you take out your Bible, and let's be honest, sometimes it's hard to read the Bible. Sometimes you just want to read People Magazine. Sometimes you just want to get on Facebook and surf, 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 right? Two hours on the internet is boom like that. 20 minutes in the Bible, a boom, right? We'll be honest tonight. But what are you doing? You're doing what the apostle told you to do. You're setting your affections. You're saying, naturally, I'm going to start desiring the things of the world. I'm going to start desiring things that money can buy. I'm going to start having passion for the lusts of the flesh because I'm still living in this old stinky body. But if I make choices to set my affection on things above. Now, back to my scenario. You've missed church two or three times, two or three weeks in a row. You've fallen off the service wagon, right? And you haven't been praying, haven't been reading the Bible. How's your spiritual mindset? No mas, right? It's gone. It's gone. And it's not because you lack self-control or lack mind control. It's because you are not doing the things that will set your affections on spiritual things. This is why some people say, well, see, when all this talk about faithfulness to church, uh, that's just trying to control, manipulate people. Baloney. You know what it is? It's trying to help people make it to heaven. 
is trying to help people stay consistent in their walk with God, to keep their minds set on spiritual things. Some people get it, some people don't get it. And they wonder why their kids have no interest in the things of God. You've got to make decisions to set your affection because that's what the Apostle Paul said. Amen. That's good right there. That's worth the price of admission. Praise God. Amen. So it's our responsibility to seek those things which are above. Our approach to daily decisions are directed from God. And we look at things from heaven's point of view when we set our affections on things above. It's a whole different perspective. So our feet are still on the earth, but our mind is in the heavenlies. Not that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. We still function as a father, as a worker, as a wife, or whatever role it is, a student. And we do our very best. But at the same time, our daily decisions are directed from God. And we look at things from the perspective of heaven. And this only happens through exposure to the word of God, faithfulness and worship, prayer and serving the kingdom of God. And, and uh, I act a certain way because in a very real sense, I'm already seated with God in the heavenlies. Verse four says, um, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. And so in a very real sense, we are seated with him on the throne, all right? So uh, think about this. We, on Sunday, mentioned Joshua and Caleb. And uh, the story that we mentioned on Sunday was that the report came back from previewing the promised land. 10 of them came back and said, uh, it's a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. We're not able to take the land. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, let's take the land. Well, the Bible says that everybody in the camp over the age of 20 died over the next 40 years. Every one of them except two. Who were the two? Joshua and Caleb. They are the only ones that were above the age of 20, according to the scriptural example, that made it into Canaan's land. They got to go back, right? The other 10 died right away in a plague. The rest of the people died during wandering through natural causes and they died and they were buried in the sand. There were two guys named Joshua and Caleb who did not die during the provocation, during the test, during the trial. Through all of that, they were able to make it into the promised land. You know why? Why? Because while they were in the wilderness, their mind was still in Canaan, amen? Their mind and their heart was still in Canaan even though their body was there in the wilderness. And as believers, when you're praying, when you're reading your Bible, when you're faithful to worship, when you're serving the kingdom of God, it's a sign that your mind, even though your body's still on this earth and you're still living and functioning as a human being on planet earth, uh, that your thoughts and your heart is on heaven. And that's what's going to take you through the trials. Amen? That's what's going to take you through the difficulties and make it all the way through. So we keep our focus on things above through prayer and studying the Bible and worship and serving the purpose of Jesus Christ. Verses five through nine, and this is probably as far as we'll get tonight. In uh, verses five through nine, we say, see that the apostle Paul turns a little bit negative here from the positive to the negative, but you got to hear both sides, right? 
You got to hear both sides. And he says in verse five, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he starts naming names. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. So the Apostle Paul says here, there are certain things that you need to put to death, to mortify. That's what mortify means, to kill or to put it to death. So he was saying in essence that you have the power through the spirit to slay those earthly fleshly desires that seek to control you. And these things seek to control your life, don't they? They do mine, but you know what I'm saying? Fleshly things seek to control our lives. And Paul is using extreme language here, mortify your members, like kill the members of your body, your, your physical body, in the same way that Jesus did when he said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Jesus wasn't suggesting you go have surgery and get your eye removed, right? Paul wasn't suggesting here that we, we cut off uh, the members of our body. But what they are teaching, because here's the real issue. The real issue is the heart, right? Because uh, you, you could uh, cut off the hand of a thief for being a pickpocket and they'll use their other hand, right? Cut off their hand and they're standing out on the street trying to pick people's pocket with their teeth. Because it's not a matter of the member, it's a matter of the heart. From the heart, the mouth speaketh. And from the heart comes these things. But what, what Jesus and the apostle Paul were saying is you've got to kill the desires. You've got to make sure and understand that you have the power that since you died with Jesus Christ, uh, that you can also put to death these fleshly sins and fleshly desires that seek to control your life. Amen? So Paul began to name the sins. And uh, he said, these are activities and actions that belong to the old life. They don't belong in the new life. And uh, he, was also, he also said there that God's judgment is coming upon those that practice these things. And so he wanted to make it clear to everybody that these sins have to be taken off. First of all, fornication. Fornication. What is fornication? Fornication is sexual immorality in every form. So that would be any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the moral code of scripture. And so fornication is sexual immorality in each and every form. And then he mentions uncleanness. What is uncleanness? Uncleanness is lustful <coughs> impurity that leads someone to loose living. They live their life in a, a, a loose, sinful way. And then he mentions inordinate affections. What are inordinate affections? I know these are kind of old words. Let's make them plain to you. Inordinate affections. Inordinate affections are, it, it has to do with your mind. It's a state of mind, right? Affections are what you're thinking about. 
Set your affections on things above. Inordinate affections is a state of mind that excites sexual impurity. It's a mindset that cultivates appetites that eventually you'll find a way to satisfy it. And uh, in our culture, in uh, 2016, particularly with the men, inordinate affection is directly linked to pornography. To pornography, which is what will excite the mind or excite sexual impurity in your mind. And when you excite sexual impurity in your mind, it creates an appetite that a person will find a way to satisfy. And then evil concupiscence, that is base evil desire. So notice he's talking about mindset. <coughs> he's talking about desires. <coughs> rather than just focusing on conduct, rather than just focusing on adultery or um, uh, sex outside of marriage, fornication, he also focuses on the mindset and uh, your thoughts and your attitudes and your passions and your desires. What is Paul telling us to do? He's like, you've got to put those to death. And a lot of times we're anxious to put to death the conduct, but we leave space for the mindset. We leave space for, for what's called inordinate affection, which is the thoughts that arouse those that uh, uh, sexual impurity. So here's a point. In order to purify your actions, you first must purify your mind and your heart. This is what the Apostle Paul's going after here. Gentlemen, gentlemen, (laughs) this is the old man. This is the old grave clothes. And you've got to take these off if you want to get your mind on things that are above. Because what we desire eventually impacts what we do. What we desire impacts what we do. And then after these sensual sins, and I I could just sit there and preach and teach on that because it is a challenge in the world that we live in. Um, When I was a kid, if somebody wanted to find pornography, they had to go looking for it, right? They had to go hunting it up. Go find a magazine. Go hang out at another teenager's house and they bring their stash out from under the bed. Not anymore. It comes stalking you. And what does it do? It creates evil concupiscence. It, it creates uh, this uh, covetousness. Or, I'm sorry. It, it, it creates these uh, other things, these inordinate affections, this uncleanness. And so as a believer, we have to believe that we are dead to sin and put to death these things at their root source. And then he mentions covetousness together with these sensual sins. He says covetousness, which is idolatry. What is covetousness? Covetousness is the sin of always wanting more. Always wanting more. Whether it's things or pleasure, never satisfied, always envious of others. Now here's a question. Why is covetousness called idolatry? Isn't idolatry worshiping false gods and idols and carvings? Why would covetousness be referred to as idolatry? The reason it is, 
is because covetousness causes us to put things in the place of God. The things that we want, the things that we desire. When our heart's passion and affection should be focused on God. And so he's saying, you've got to put covetousness to death here. Because here's the deal. When a, when a person is covetous, they're never satisfied. They're always wanting more. They're going to do whatever it takes to satisfy this desire. I think it's interesting here, and we'll close out with this, and I hate, I wish I had another two hours, and I know you wish I didn't, but I wish I did, because this whole chapter is so powerful, but I'm out of time, and I promised you, and I made a promise I'm going to keep it. And um, Ulysses is like, yes. (laughs) I'm just playing. (laughs) Uh. As he talks about, fornication is, is conduct, but the rest of these things are mindset. Think about covetousness. Can you name the Ten Commandments? Have no other gods before me. Don't uh, have any graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Honor the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Uh, what is it? Honor your father and your mother. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And then number 10 is the only one that's not really an action, it's an attitude, right? Thou shalt not covet. The rest of them are things that you do. Covetousness is an attitude. But here's the deal. If a person is covetous, it will lead them to break all the other of the, ten, of the other nine commandments out of their desire to get whatever it is that they want. Amen. And so they'll do anything. The covetous person will covetous person will dishonor God and his commandments. The covetous person will profane God, will lie, steal, commit other sins just to satisfy their desires. So as we would transition to verses eight and nine, oh, I wish I could get here. I, I wonder if we should do this next week. Well, I think we may need to go to the next one, but verses eight and nine, he really focuses here on social sins. I'll just read it and that'll be it. But now ye also put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing you've put off the old man with his deeds. These are the sins that have a better reputation among us. Because if you commit the other sins, it's scandalous. But we kind of wink at these other ones. But the Bible says we're supposed to mortify and take these off as well. These social sins. Take them off in order to put on the new things. Because the old clothes don't fit anymore. Let's stand together. Praise God. Hallelujah. If there's one thing that I hope that you picked up from uh, the lesson tonight, the study tonight, is that you're not going to make it and you're not going to grow spiritually without becoming familiar with the Word of God. Uh, As we were going to get into it, it talks about knowledge, that we're transformed by knowledge. Transformed by knowledge. Remember, he's talking to the Gnostics there. And, uh, but he wasn't talking about some secret knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge of the word of God. 
because when you know the word of God, it'll bring transformation. Now you take off the old man, put on the new man. That's a one-time thing. But then he says, be renewed in your mind. This is a continual thing. Amen. So there's two types of new. One new has to do with new in time. So when you take off the old and put on the new, that's new in time. The other word new that's in the Greek means something fresh, something fresh. So the new man is when you take off the old, put on the new, but the renewing of the mind is something fresh that has to happen and only happens through the power of the word of God. So we can be led astray. We can get in a big mess. We can get our lives out of control uh, if we're not personally familiar with the word of God. So I'm telling you today that knowing the word, studying the word, having a good balanced foundation in the word of God is absolutely essential and critical to growing spiritually. But I'm preaching to the choir, aren't I? You're here tonight. Amen. You're here tonight. Let's ask the Lord to put his word in our heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord God, for your word. I thank you for its power to transform and change. I thank you for truth, Lord God, and I thank you for a greater understanding of your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, this week as we study Colossians chapter 3 together, as we read it in the different translations, God, I pray that you would speak to us particularly of what we're supposed to take off and what we're supposed to mortify so that we can take on gentleness and forgiveness and kindness, Lord God, and the characteristics of the Spirit. Lord God, speak to us and let your word be alive and transformational in us. And we thank you, Lord God. We thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave us comfortless, but you came through the power of your Spirit. And you didn't leave us vulnerable, but you sent us the word of God. Hallelujah. The perfect word of God, the the inspired word of God. And I thank you, Lord, for your spirit and I thank you for your word because we are renewed through your word and we're renewed through your spirit and those of us that are born again Lord God are constantly being refreshed in the spirit of our mind by your word and by your spirit thank you for it in Jesus name everybody shout amen Amen. and God bless you you're dismissed in Jesus name